0: Well, let's bow our heads in prayer. Holy God, you have blessed us with so much and we come out of this season of Thanksgiving perhaps still reeling from everything that you have blessed us with in our lives, friends, family, all of the things that make our lives comfortable and good and wonderful and enjoyable. As we descend into scripture, that you have also blessed us with, that we are also thankful for. We ask you to help us. Open our hearts, open our minds and our spirits to what you have to say to us this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we are wrapping up the... Last piece of our study in Acts that we've been doing together, and oddly enough, the Old and New Testament readings have no passages from Acts in them. But we will instead be reading from Zechariah 9, verses 10 through 17. And God will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. And God's dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope! Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow, and I will arouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow go forth like lightning, The Lord God will sound the trumpet and march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the slingers. They shall drink their blood like wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. But on that day, their Lord will save them. For they are the flock of God's people. For like the jewels of a crown... They will shine on this land. For what goodness and beauty are the Lord's? Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Our second reading, also not from Acts, comes from the Gospel of Matthew, verses twenty, chapter twenty-five. Excuse me, verses thirty-one through forty-six. Now when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and the angels all around with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at the left. And then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous shall answer, saying, Lord, And then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said, for many weeks now we've been talking and looking at the book of Acts and what this account of the early church has for us in the modern church of today. Of course, there's much we can still learn from the power of Scripture. It still speaks to us in the same Holy Spirit language that it did in those days. And socially, too, there are a lot of similarities that we have with the early church being affected by zealotry and misunderstandings and all of those kinds of things. But as we have been following since September... We've seen the Holy Spirit at work in this church, restoring and resurrecting, causing disruption and disturbance, establishing leadership, calling martyrs, performing miracles, and creating paths through which we could love our enemies. Now, if today you didn't read ahead in the bulletin to the title of the sermon, a lot of the liturgy might sound like it was taking an odd-leaning We'll set aside a lesson on accepting the worship as a whole meal. And just move into seeing that our service today does take a definite note toward the theme of incarceration and freedom. As we've been on this journey through Acts, I feel as though there's one final realization to make about this book that is very important and necessary, really, to get what the author of Acts and the Gospel of Luke are trying to accomplish. That is, the, the whole story that the, that the Holy Spirit is telling us in the ancient church and in our modern family. I think it's tied to this idea of incarceration. Now, to understand where this is coming from, we're first going to have to look back at Luke's primary book, which is the Gospel of Luke, which focused on the human interactions And the relationships of Christ. We see in Luke's gospel that son of man is used much, much more than in the other gospels. And it's only in Luke that we realize that the woman bathing Christ's feet in oil is a hermantelos. Which is someone who is guilty of crime. Someone who is still wicked. Only in Luke do we see conversations with thieves. On the cross. Only in Luke does Jesus tell Zacchaeus that Christ's purpose was to come and seek and save the lost. So, knowing this, it should come as no surprise that the book of Acts, Luke's second book, is also mainly concerned with how the church treats one another. And it is again the story of how human interactions are driving this narrative through many initial structures and events. Of this burgeoning faith, this new way of being faithful that the world has never seen before. And we know that we know from Paul in Colossians that Luke is a Gentile. So again, it should come as no wonder that the way in which the church opens itself to the people who were once thought of as abhorrent and unclean is of a passionate focus to Luke. Also, we can notice in the Gospel of Luke, there is an elegantly written subtext, which is necessary for us today. Luke is an educated Gentile, no stranger to literature, and employs literary techniques, if we're able to see them. The Gospel begins and ends with the subject of birth. In chapter 1, immediately after Luke's introduction, we have the heralding, the foretelling of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And if we look at the end of Luke, Luke concludes with the heralding of the church that is yet unborn in the book of Acts, because they are Jewish people still worshiping at a temple and praising God after the ascension of Christ. They are not yet in the fullness of what the church is going to be. So Luke is a fan of this bookend style of writing. So as we finished looking at Acts proper last week, we see another similar bookending. At the beginning of Acts in chapter 2, The followers of Christ are in one room. They're in an upper room, having concluded the business of electing a new person to replace Judas. They have no further direction. They are waiting, isolated, and in essence, locked away. Other Jewish folks at this point, on this day, are celebrating a Jewish festival, Shavuot, it's the Jewish name for Pentecost, which is the 50th day after Passover. It's a Jewish celebration. Yet these folks, these followers of Christ, are not celebrating with everyone else. They should have been reading from the Hebrew Bible, hanging greens around the house and harvesting wheat. And yet they sat together instead in a kind of incarceration But the story of the church arrives in full force with the Holy Spirit of Pentecost, driving them out into the world, into the ends of the earth. And then similarly, at the end of Acts, we have Paul, the creator of this widespread Gentile movement the creator of this new understanding of what it was to have community, to have faith, to have an interwoven love and dependence on each other, Paul is also heading to prison. So the story of Acts, this incredibly fiery event, this legacy of the church that is focused on the death of faithful people unwilling to recant their belief, this painful story of sacrifice and terror, this earth-altering explosion of belief, as passionately caring for people who had nothing, begins and ends with imprisonment. We might well ask what the ancient people thought of prison, because it was was very different from the way we use prison in our culture today. In the ancient world, in Old Testament land, we have prisons that were basically underground dungeons or empty cisterns, as our Old Testament reading told us today. Empty wells, dry wells, pits in the ground, dark and miserable places. Jeremiah talks about them also, that he was in a cistern house for many days. And when he was released for interrogation, Jeremiah begs not to be returned to his cell for fear that he would die there. Micaiah was put in prison on starvation rations of bread and water. The psalmist speaks of prisoners in misery and in irons, captives who groan and are doomed to die. And Job considers Sheol to be preferable To imprisonment. And things are no better in Jesus' era. With few exceptions, the Roman prisons of the period are dark, disease ridden, and overcrowded. It was common for prisoners to die in custody from disease or starvation, from brutal torture, execution, or suicide. Imprisonment was described by ancient authors of every type as a fate worse than death. So why is Luke using this theme in Acts? Why has this become an important piece of Paul's journey? Why has this become an important touchstone for many of the characters of Acts that we have been following all this time? Prison was used as a place to await the sentencing of the court. It was a place to await execution, exile, or enslavement. It was a place to wait until the debt that you owed had finally been paid. Prison is where they waited. Much like the early church is waiting on the day of Pentecost. And how in Ephesians 3, Paul describes himself as a prisoner for Christ. For the sake of the Gentiles, incarcerated in a miserable place, expecting execution, yet working, Paul was still working on the debt of the world. Paul knew that the debt was actually paid. Yes, we, we understand and know that the grace of Jesus Christ is with us, but Paul was working so that this freedom from debt could be known. Paul saw the imprisonment of the world as something that still needed that knowledge that their release was at hand. As I said, many Christians in the early church languished in prison awaiting their sentencing. And why did Christians go to prison in the book of Acts? It was mostly... Because the ancient world didn't know what to do with them. Christians were a brand new breed of thing. The non-Christians of the ancient world could have used that famous Churchill saying. That a Christian was a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. The ancient world had never seen anything like a Christian before. Which... I guess it's understandable because the Jewish leaders had never seen anything like Jesus Christ as a teacher before. The ancient world didn't have regular communal meetings to retell a story of faith and grace. That wasn't something that they did. The ancient world was not so inspired by their faith that they sought to draw others into the belief. The ancient world didn't have a system of belief, as we understand it, but just a loose gathering of ritual practices tied to family gods and local gods and gods of the ruling empire state. The ancient world did not find morality or the insistence to care for the sick, the poor, or the fringe folks of their society in their system of belief. There are letters and letters and letters written as Christianity started to take hold between governors of the Roman Empire talking about how they weren't sure what to do with these Christians and, well, this is what I've done with them, and oh, do you think that's okay? And Well, yeah, that sounds fine. And, well, okay, I'm going to keep doing that. And they'll ask each other, well, what did, what did you do? Well, I did this. Okay, well, we'll do that too. No one had an understanding of what they really were. In fact, there were lots of rumors about what Christians were and what they did. People in the ancient world used to talk about how, oh, the Christians they they eat children and drink blood because we do consume the flesh of the Son of God. <laughs> There's also talk of incestuous relationships because they call each other brother and sister in their communal meetings. Yet some are married didn't understand what Christians were. And yet, in the face of that, the number of Christians, the number of people that came to believe, the number of folks that heard the good news kept going up. Until about the 300s, there were somewhere around 30 million Christians in the ancient world. And you have this awesome, fantastic story that did begin, yes, in imprisonment. We expect will continue this upward curve of amazement into this 30 million mark years later. But there's no arc. It feels like more of a bell curve because we end with Paul preaching under the eye of Roman guards, pleading his death sentence with the emperor of the world. Yet there's a difference between those two bookending stories of incarceration. Just as if we look back in the Gospel of Luke, the expectation, the foretelling of birth is different. It's different when we're talking about two babies that might be coming that are going to come, how they're gonna change the world. And the expectation of the fullness of the church and the the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. The church begins Acts imprisoned in fear and in wonder at the future before the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And Luke explicitly tells us at the end of Acts that Paul proclaims the kingdom of God and teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The incarnation, at the, the incarceration at the end of Acts no longer holds isolation and fear and weakness because nothing in the world can stop the Holy Spirit. Well, as we've shared some of this liturgy this morning, the liturgy that's been inspired by the poems of incarcerated people, I hope that we can connect a little bit more with the prisoner. I hope that we can see with new eyes the view that Paul had on his own life. I hope that we can deepen our understanding of the book of Acts as the story of an incarcerated church has two very different meanings from beginning to end. We are still prisoners of Christ in the same way that Paul was. Willingly, we have taken on this imprisonment to find true freedom. As prisoners of Christ, we absorb the unstable and less than ideal conditions of Christianity so that we can administer the deep Love of our Lord with those who are sick, with those who are strangers in our land, with those who are thirsty, with those who ache to be invited in, with those who are hopeless and alone in need of our visits. To do, as Matthew is saying, for the least of God's people, we have to take on a portion of their stories in our empathy. To truly hear Christ's call, people, brothers and sisters, to hear the insistence of the divine family and the people who have no status. In order to give back humanity to people who have been dehumanized, in order to give power over to those people in our family who have no power of their own, in order to be counted as sheep instead of goats. We have to be incarcerated. And because we are incarcerated, because we are prisoners of Christ, we are to know hopelessness at times. We are to know starvation and times of darkness within the cisterns, within those deep wells. And yet, we are not prisoners without hope as we get ready to enter into the season of Advent next week, we are the hopeful prisoner of the Old Testament. We are and will continue to be, as Zechariah says, uplifted. In the Old Testament reading, God is going to set those prisoners free from their waterless pits, from the darkness that was without end. And in Luke's companion to Acts, the gospel, Luke spells out why Jesus is here in relationship to that freedom that God seeks to give. Jesus echoes it. The message that Zechariah's people longed for has come in Christ, Luke tells us. The very first thing that Jesus does publicly as an adult in the gospel of Luke is to tell all of the people, that the Lord has anointed Christ to proclaim good news to the poor, that God has sent Jesus to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery the sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. This is the story of the church in the book of Acts. For Luke, the ministry of Christ and the true and faithful shepherding of the church is to live into the incarceration in the name of the one who comes to give freedom to those who are shackled in the cisterns of our world. If they are fearing for their lives or simply dealing with the loss of a loved one, then they are the same in their lack of freedom, in their lack of hope. They are part of the family. Our lives have been altered by Christ and will continually be altered by the work that we are drawn into. We will weep and be martyred, but will not stop because we will also do miracles and be set on fire by a mighty wind. Because that is our story. That is the story of the church. This thing called church, sometimes like now as it was in ancient times, is kind of a crazy idea. But if we truly desire the righteous eternal life, if we want to shine like jewels in the land, if we want to flourish and be full, then we must be prisoners. Incarcerated together in this work, knowing that the real freedom is here, knowing what it looks like and what it tastes like, and being able to bring that good news to all the ends of the earth. Amen.